0: What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: McKay Coppins burst on the national journalism scene in 2012 as the beat reporter for BuzzFeed covering Mitt Romney's campaign for president. He got attention in part because he was the only Mormon among the press corps covering the first Mormon nominee for president of the United States. But he also uh, earned that attention through his incisive reporting, writing, observations of the Republican scene generally, which he sharpened into the 2016 race when some of his pieces about Donald Trump, shall we say, got the attention of the candidate. McKay was a visiting fellow at the Institute of Politics this month, and I sat down with him while he was there to talk about Trump, Vice President Pence, and these turbulent times in which we live. McKay Coppins, good to be with you. Thank you first for being a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago.
0: Happy to do it.
1: Couldn't be more interesting times to, yeah. uh, to have you. I want to talk about all of that, but uh, first I want to talk a little bit about, about you and your, um, your path to punditry, <laughs> uh, which began in Massachusetts. Tell, tell me about that.
0: Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Boston. Um we I I <laughs> I think I, the students here keep asking when I decided I wanted to be a journalist. I think it was somewhere around ninth grade. Um, So I I kind of had a direction all along.
1: Well, let me ask about your family, though. Uh, Were they always uh, from Massachusetts? I know you're you're Mormon.
0: Yeah. Which is part of a very small Mormon world in Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh,
1: Uh, Mitt Romney was part of that world for
0: for a while. He was. In fact, he was my family's bishop, uh, although I have no recollection of it. I was Young, um, does your family? My, my parents kind of know him not well, but they, you know, they, they their story about him is they once ran into him at a blockbuster, uh, and he recommended so. So I married an axe murderer. That was <laughs> that's their strongest personal memory of him. That was not
1: in his role as bishop that he made that, <laughs> no, that was, recommendation.
0: It was strictly non ecclesiastical. And <laughs> so, where did your
1: family? Where, where? What's the? What is the history of your family that before they? They didn't start in Massachusetts, obviously. No. Uh,
0: both my my parents moved around a lot when they were growing up, but both kind of settled in Spokane, Washington area. Um, on my dad's side, my dad's family were converts to Mormonism. On my mom's side, it goes all the way back to the Mormon pioneers. Huh. <laughs> so, um, And they moved around. My uh, dad went to BYU. um, so my Young, mom yeah. at Brigham Young University in, in Provo. Uh, and they got married there and then eventually he became a consultant and went into business in Massachusetts. And so that's where I grew up. I see. Uh and so uh you
1: decided in ninth grade you want to be why?
0: <laughs> well I liked writing. Um and I liked writing uh, like, I, I would write, like, short stories and fiction and stuff like that. And you know, my parents, perhaps uh, not knowing that much about the journalism industry, thought that it would be a more stable career to become a reporter. Um, but they uh, they suggested I start uh, writing for the local newspaper, which I did. I wrote, like, a youth column, um, which are very embarrassing, and I would encourage no one now to was ever this go the, find them.
1: Was this the, the basis of... Uh... Uh, mckay recycled oh, and
0: i can't believe I, uh, your researchers found that, <laughs> <laughs> that so tell me self- about <laughs> this this self-published book of yours self-published in high school um i thought i bought up all the copies on amazon i don't i think there's still some floating we're ground.
1: gonna have a raffle or an auction of some sort at the end of the uh, podcast but Go
0: ahead. yeah those are just I mean, look, they're just like columns about things that teenagers care about. so but it was I mean it was a good experience to just have a weekly like a deadline that I had to meet and and it got me in the in the habit of writing and observing and eventually this is the beginning of a journalism career.
1: First and foremost, business is all about blaming it on someone oh from the tech gosh, department what? when a piece of chocolate cake has mysteriously disappeared from the office <laughs> refrigerator.
0: I'm le- I'm leaving this. You're, I'm, uh, I'm you're, out of this. Out your of this dating interview. approach,
1: sure. I always had an idea of what girls look for in a guy: good grammar, strong political views, and an extensive vocabulary. As far as I can tell, but I had never really found my niche as far as asking how girls went.
0: <laughs> this so. is literally no one has ever asked me about this. Your researchers are very thorough, David. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, look, I wrote the, that literally that column. I think I wrote when I was 15 years old. Yeah.
1: Um No, you can see the promise there
0: I, <laughs> and also that I was quite a ladies man as a teenager <laughs> um,
1: and and so you you uh, you decided to follow your parents to BYU having mm-hmm. having already been a published author. <laughs> and what did you uh, and, and, and did you know when you went there that you were pursuing a career in journalism?
0: I kind of did. You know, I, I was open to other things. The, a cl- I took a class my freshman year where we learned about uh, kind of literary nonfiction. And we, we learned about Tom Wolfe and, you know, the famous new journalism uh, practitioners. And that's where I kind of fell in love with it and realized it was something I wanted to do long term. But I, I mean, I was only at BYU for a year before I served a Mormon mission. So Where was your mission? I was called to Texas, Dallas, you know, the exotic uh, locale. Yeah, you don't get to choose. I, I you know, you have. That's too bad.
1: You hear these great <clears> throat>
0: stories. Throat> I know people you get to traveling ch- the world, and you ended up <laughs> well, in my Dallas. Dad, my dad was in Mexico, and you know, uh, they have like a box you can check for if you want to serve overseas. And obviously, like I checked it a million times, but I did learn Spanish. They taught me Spanish, so uh, you know, I got a language. Out How
1: does about. that work when they call you in? Do you? There's no court of appeal, right? You can't <laughs> no, say, hey, you know, I was kind of hoping for something better than Dallas. <laughs>
0: Um, No, you have to like pretend to be excited about it when you open it up. (laughs) When you open up the assignment, I mean, I I ended up loving it, and I will say that one the the thing, the experience that it gave me was I spent the whole time working with you know Hispanic immigrants, um, and it did give me an insight into to a set of policy issues that obviously have come to define our modern politics.
1: How does that shape your your thinking as you watch this debate unfold?
0: I mean, and I think probably obvious ways that the the dehumanizing quality that uh, of immigrants in our current political debate is really frustrating for me. Um, it's just. Did the, you make
1: associations then that 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 continued?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I still keep in touch with a bunch of the people that I met during, at that time.
1: And were uh, they were were these some of them undocumented immigrants?
0: I would say. Su- at least probably half of the mm-hmm. people that I knew well yeah mm-hmm. the, it's funny though there's this, I've been wanting to go back and write about this at some point but I was at one point living in a town called Farmers Branch which is right outside of Dallas and they this was kind of an early like preview of trumpism to come they had this law that became a national flashpoint where they it was basically making it illegal to rent to illegal immigrants and uh, making it easier for police to round them up mm-hmm. and um, seeing that from the perspective of these immigrants I was working with and these families who were terrified to cross over the border into this small town this is where the church was so we would be inviting people to come to the Spanish language services here but you know they were afraid of crossing the border because they thought they would immediately get deported so kind of seeing that play out on the relatively small scale i think is probably a lot of what is being felt around the country right now um and
1: uh in terms of the the your faith itself how, how did how did that def- define you
0: oh in all kinds of
1: ways i mean i think it's mormonism is is not well understood and not. obviously came to the fore a little and we'll talk about this in a minute when Romney ran for president in 2012, but not that much because yeah. the Romney campaign yeah. did a really uh, uh, aggressive job of trying to subdue uh, his Mormonism as a theme in the campaign, even though his faith is clearly uh, a big part mm-hmm. of his life.
0: Yeah. and, and, That was something I actually related to a lot because I grew up Mormon in Massachusetts. I think it was me and like three other Mormons in our high school. You know, it was a very small uh, group of us and not well known. And um, and I understood the instinct to downplay it because people thought it was weird, you know, but I also recognized and this was one of the reasons that the Romney campaign kind of held me at arm's length a lot of the time is because I recognized that it was central to his worldview, you know, it was central to mine. How could it not be central to his and the, the idea central to yours? Well, I mean, so first I should say every Mormon has different experiences Mm -hmm. and it's not like we all have the same uh, beliefs, uh, but I will say like the, I mean, there are a lot of things, the, the sense of community that Mormons, uh, that Mormons, uh, create, and this is similar to other religious groups, but there's a very Mormons are very tightly networked, <laughs> and it go, harkens back to the history of the faith when you know Mormons were being driven out of different states and eventually settled in the desert mm-hmm. in Utah but there's a strong sense of we need to take care of each other. There's kind of a communitarianism that even though Mormonism is a very conservative faith and Mormons are the most reliably Republican religious group in America, they also don't subscribe to this kind of fiercely individualist uh, idea that runs through a lot of the conservative movement. Mormons really believe in watching out for each other, looking out for each other. Uh, there's all kinds of programs in the church where you have to you know, uh, pay attention to each other and, and help each other when you're in crisis. And that, I think, has informed kind of the way that I think about the world and the way that I think about human interactions and politics and policy as well.
1: Yeah. Romney himself, I mean, it came, very late in the campaign, they sort of lifted the curtain a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a film that played at the republican convention in 2012 that i thought was very impactful in which people talked about his his outreach to people who were struggling in the community yeah Uh, and um i mean frankly as the strategist on the other side i thought man i'm glad they didn't surface this stuff (laughs) earlier yeah because and was, that
0: they didn't show it on primetime in yeah. TV. Well, because
1: they had to make room for Clint Eastwood, <laughs> as it turns out. But that's a whole nother story. So uh, you finished your, your mission, and then did you go back to I BYU? I went back
0: to BYU. Um, that's when I got married, as, mm-hmm. as BYU students are wont to do, get married in college. Um, and uh immediately kind of went dove back into journalism like it, it was clear by that point that this is what I wanted to do mm-hmm. and even as a missionary um seeing all these I, there were so many times when I was a missionary it was like oh, I wish I could put on my reporter hat and start to write about this stuff you know yeah. um so I became the editor of the the campus newspaper. Got myself in a lot of trouble.
1: <laughs> I was. Uh, I spoke at BYU a few months ago, and uh, they gave me a tour of their media center. Oh yeah. Uh, I did a radio interview while I was there. Uh, I mean, that was quite a place. I mean, that was a first rate broadcast center.
0: Yeah, it's really it's it's a weird thing because they have a lot of resources. Um, And in a lot of ways, it's a much more professional uh, experience than I think a lot of student journalists and student broadcasters would have. But it's also because it's all sponsored by paid for by the university and it's a private religious university there's a lot of it's a lot more uh, constraints yeah there's a lot more re- constraints put on the kind of journalism you can do and and uh that that's where i found myself butting heads
1: sometimes <laughs> my <laughs> narrative of you uh really picks up in 2012 when you start working for buzzfeed during that campaign. But what, what did you do in between to prepare yourself for that or put yourself in a position?
0: <laughs> well, I got uh, an internship that BYU set up uh, with Newsweek. Um, mm-hmm. So in 2010, when I left BYU, I uh, landed at Newsweek actually like two weeks before it was put up for sale by the Graham family. That wasn't cause and effect, uh, right? <laughs> they yeah. were like "Week, no, yeah, No, it was not me, yeah. hopefully. And um, but uh, it actually ended up being kind of lucky uh, because they were put up for sale, and all these people started jumping ship because they were, you know, afraid so of more responsibility for you. Well, they just, yeah, they needed bodies, and so they hired the nearest. So, intern. what kind of
1: stories were you writing for Newsweek?
0: Now? I was doing all kinds of stories. So, I did a lot of politics, but also I did. Early on, because Tina Brown became the editor, yes. who and in a, a um an ambitious uh attempt to curry favor with her, I had pitched a story about um American women who were going over to England to try to marry royal men. <laughs> that 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 is uh you and you and you mock Mike Pence for being an, a brown noser, huh? It was. It really got me in with Tina Brath. Let me tell you. But actually, my big story, my big break as a political reporter, was at Newsweek because. Um, I had set up an interview with John Huntsman, who was then ambassador uh, to China. You might recall this moment. I do indeed, yes. (laughs) And it was supposed to be literally just like a short Q&A. It was when he was back in Washington for the holidays. And he ended up choosing that moment to float the idea that he was going to possibly run for president. Um, And so... You know that was just a scoop that landed. Now in was my that lab. a Mormon hookup? <laughs> actually, not. Everyone the, thought the, it yeah. was yeah. Mike Allen. I remember at Politico at the time at Playbook. You know, no one knew who I was, and he was like, "John Huntsman gives the scoop to a young Mormon reporter from who <laughs> g- went to BYU." <laughs> it literally, I, the only the only hookup was that I was aware of John Huntsman because I lived in Utah yeah. when he was governor. So I just was like, oh. very effective,
1: actually, <laughs> Governor. I yeah, uh, we always sort of thought that he someday would would run for president it was kind of surprising that it was in 2012 after he had been an ambassador appointed by barack obama but yeah i actually talked to him in the summer of 2009 when we were in uh we were in china and uh his thing was you know I'm, i may do that sometime not Anytime soon, so. I don't know what changed. His circumstances change. I don't know, but I bet you. In retrospect, he wishes, he wishes he had, that he totally. hadn't changed his mind. Uh, so you got hired by BuzzFeed in uh, 2012, January 2012, to cover the Romney campaign. Uh, first of all, um, wh- what attracted you to BuzzFeed, which was a relatively new? uh presence on the scene. Very new. Yes, <laughs> yes. At the time. Uh, and uh and did they were they attracted to you because they thought as a Mormon you would have insights into Romney and maybe in, inroads to the Romney organization?
0: I think so. So you know, I was aware of Ben Smith, uh, who was going from Politico to yes. run Buzzfeed, um, just because, like a lot of political reporters, I would send him links uh, to my stories, so he would put them on his blog. Um, but when I read that he was staffing up. I sent him like a DM on Twitter, and I was like, hey, keep me in mind. Literally, I was just so restless. I wanted to get out on the campaign trail, and I knew at Newsweek I wasn't going to get to do it. But it's funny. So I met with Ben in the basement of Grand Central Station uh, for my interview. And in retrospect, I think he would acknowledge that he asked a lot of questions that probably were not uh, HR-approved about my religion. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So he definitely—that was part of it. I mean— I, I think he was. He thought not that I would necessarily have connections with Mitt Romney and his team, because um, I really didn't. Mm-hmm. But that I would have kind of insights into his worldview and into his uh, character that that other reporters wouldn't have. And and that that and you did, were the only Mormon he, reporter uh, yeah, on the exactly. campaign. It did become kind of my niche. It was
1: yeah, the, they called you the Mormon Wikipedia. The,
0: that was the other reporters on the traveling press corps called me. Yeah, um, and so.
1: What did that? What did that give you? I mean, we just talked about a little bit earlier uh, how striking it was that, uh, that how little yeah. that was part of the campaign. Um, <clears throat> so, what insights did you get into Romney? And did that? I guess my view is that their reticence about kind of fleshing him out as an as a full human being, acknowledging his faith, acknowledging. His business because basically they didn't and yeah. and and we did, mm-hmm. but we we pointed to things that were negatives. They never really painted a positive picture, and they, they didn't talk about his gubernatorial race, either, his gubernatorial tenure either because the health care issue right. was so uh, <laughs> difficult for them because he had uh, a, a an Obamacare like program. Yep, he, he was Obamacare before Obamacare was. Cool or uncool, depending on what your position <laughs> was. But um, so, w- what was your what was your, what were your what was your ob- what were your observations then when you were watching this whole thing unfold?
0: Well, it. it, it- like I said, I understood the reticence, especially because in 2008, when he had run for for president, he had faced a lot of anti Mormonism in the Iowa caucuses mm-hmm. from evangelical voters and and some of his Republican primary opponents. I think in the uh, South as well. I mean, right. Florida, huh? Yeah. So he kind of he had already had that experience, so he felt burned by it, and he he was you know all in for just let's just. Take the faith issue off the table, and to your credit, the Obama campaign never went after it. You know, you didn't yeah. touch it, yeah. and um, so all he had to run on was his business, his business background, and his uh, his governorship, his governorship, and neither of those were really politically viable for him. Um, so, you know, I I ended up writing a lot about his faith. Some of it was like. Just explaining elements of Mormonism that would come up in the campaign conversation. Things like um, posthumous baptisms that Mormons do or Mormon underwear. (laughs) The story that I wrote that got the most traffic all year was a story explaining what Mormon underwear were because so many people were asking about it. Then there were other, like, remember the episode, you guys I'm sure remember this, when it was, I don't know if it was an Obama surrogate or just a Democratic strategist said that Ann Romney hadn't worked a day in her life. And it became this huge flashpoint in the campaign um i like while people were debating that i wrote a longer story that was kind of about Mormon gender politics and kind of um, the theological history and how that had evolved and where it came from and and how that might have influenced Ann Romney. And that was a story the Romney campaign hated. <laughs> but I do feel like it shed some light on, you know, it wasn't an attack and it wasn't an apology. It was just, here's the context of where she's coming from and where the Romneys are coming from here. And, and that was kind of my approach the whole time. But like I said, it did not endear me to the Romney she campaign. She to
1: raise five boys, which is kind work. of a lot of work. That's yeah, work, exactly.
0: <laughs> That's work. Um, yeah. yeah, and I mean, look uh, the the thing about Romney's Mormonism is that it ended up. I think everyone on that campaign would acknowledge now that it was a big mistake not to just make it part of his biography and mm-hmm. talk about it from the beginning because. I actually can relate to this in a way where he separated his his business life and professional life from his religious life. And I think that probably for Mitt Romney, the deepest sense of who he was and his identity came from his religious life.
1: It sure—you know, I've gotten to know him since, and, uh, and uh, it, it is striking to me. He's a very decent guy, mm, yeah. and uh, it, it, it was striking to me, and I— I actually did a podcast with him. Uh, I think it was in in his son's home uh, in San Diego, hmm. uh, and the degree to which he was into his family, and the pleasure he took uh, in his grandchildren, yeah. and all that stuff, you know, were part of the full picture of who he was. And one thing about running for president is you you've got to be you've got to be th- fully dimensional. People Mm -hmm. need to feel like they know who you are. And if you can't do that, uh, it's a very, very damaging thing. I think Hillary Clinton experienced some of that in the last campaign. i got to take a short break, and I'll be right back with McKay Coppins. Romney lost. The Republican Party was in ruins. (laughs) Uh, or so it's, it's it seemed, <laughs> at least on the national level. Um, and you start writing extensively about the Republican Party itself. Uh, and one of the stories that you wrote uh, was uh, with a in, in 2014 a, a a fringe guy who. <laughs> you and you and many others suggested would never actually run named Donald Trump explain how
0: that story came about and a little bit of of how he reacted to it yeah well so at that time it, it was you know after the 2012 race where his biggest political claim to fame had been as chief birther conspiracy theorist, so he was not really beloved by anyone in the political establishment at that point. But he was because going,
1: Republicans viewed that as a as an as a burden,
0: a tie, kind of a fringe sideshow that they didn't want to have to. I mean, Romney had accepted Trump's endorsement, and I think immediately regretted it because then they had him kind of hung around his neck the entire election, right? And so Republicans were sick of him. Democrats hated him. Um, and I then remember even, a
1: picture, by the way, that we used a lot in commercials in 2012, <laughs> which was Romney getting off of his plane, yep, and in the background the Trump, yeah. was the Trump yep, plane, yep, so the big Trump logo.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't helpful. It was not helpful. Um, but Trump was giving this speech in New Hampshire that politics and eggs forum, the famous you yeah. know, rite of passage that any presidential contender has At to go to At St. Anselm's yep. College. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I pitched them on Trump's people on interviewing him. So going to cover the speech and then interviewing him on a flight from New Hampshire back to New York, just on his plane. And my kind of idea was that this guy's never, he's been saying he's going to run for president for 25 years. He's never done it. This is clearly a publicity stunt. So why not just call it what it is and then talk to him about why he keeps you know doing this? Like what what is the reason, right? Um, <clears throat> but. While we were on, so he gave the speech, we were on the way to the plane and right before we got on the plane, he gets a call from his pilot saying that there's a snowstorm in New York City. LaGuardia is shut down. We can't go there. And so Trump at the last minute says, you know, let's just circumvent New York and go straight to uh, to Palm Beach. And we'll, I'll just go straight to Mar-a-Lago. And one of his aides was like, you know, we've got a reporter here. What do you want us to do with him? And Trump was like, oh, bring him along. So I ended up spending two days at Mar-a-Lago with, with Donald Trump. First of all, I have to
1: ask just parenthetically, what did you guys eat on the way down to? mar-a-lago i mean was it was it burgers and on the way on
0: the actual plane nothing pretzels (laughs) it was it well it was just him it was him it was first like supposed to be an hour-long flight and it was just him and me and like two other people stocked no it wasn't stocked it was pretzels and and you know soda uh when we got to mar-a-lago we had, you know, bison burgers and, uh, you know, shrimp and steak and no, bison was, burgers lower fat. Was, yeah, good. I don't know if that was the Thank reason, God. but, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean the the weird thing about it is, I mean, have you ever met Donald Trump in person? Yeah. You dealt with him, yes. Like he's he has this televised quality to him, even in real life. Like he is he's a lot like the character he plays on TV although the one thing that stood out to me was that he the uh, the over the 2 days I spent with him is he's a lot more insecure than he sometimes comes off on tv although i think the insecurity now has has come through his twitter feed although um, it
1: manifests itself in bizarre ways yes. yeah i should say parenthetically because um i haven't recently and i always try and acknowledge it every once in a while that um in uh, 2012, when I was raising money for epilepsy research, which is a passion oh, right. of mine and my family's, um, I did this slash the stash thing in which I shaved my mustache off <laughs> of 40 years to raise money for epilepsy. And I I kind of goaded uh, the Donald on, on, uh, on Morning Joe, actually, uh, because we had made this bet that he bet the president five million dollars or something that he wouldn't produce his 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 birth certificate, and the president did. And so I said on the show, you know, we never collected the five million, so the least he could do uh, is send this hundred, you know, send me a hundred thousand for for this. And he and he did. I mean, I, in retrospect, it came from his foundation, but I don't care. Uh, you know, I appreciated the gesture. So. Uh, I wanted to do a full disclosure, but anyway, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. you, uh, So you found him to be insecure, and you sort of portrayed that in the story.
0: I mean, that was the thing that came through most to me: is that he was very anxious to have me, even as like a twenty five year old BuzzFeed reporter, to take him seriously. He wanted me to take him seriously. He was obsessed with the political press and the political establishment taking him seriously, and And he still is. And he still is. this is This
1: is the interesting thing, even as he. Denounces the New York Times mm-hmm. as, as fake news. Uh, you know he's on the phone rather regularly with Maggie Haberman yep. uh, and, and and others. Uh, And uh, holding forth. Same with the Washington
0: Post. It's the central irony of the Trump story is that he rages against the establishment, whether it's the media establishment, political establishment, and then kind of pantingly chases their affection. Right. He wants them to love him. It's kind of it's honestly kind of sad. And I thought I tried to have that come through in the profile. He
1: uh, well, your solicitude Uh for him was not (laughs) was not well appreciated because he he, you were one of the early recipients of the Trump treatment on Twitter. Yes. In the press. He called you a slime bag. True garbage with no credibility. Uh, Scumbag. Also attacked my wife.
0: Which was Alleging
1: threatened. that he ogled at women while on the yeah. oh oh I see. Uh, was he? He said you ogled at women.
0: Well, he he told he said he he, he said that I ogled women. Uh, is it ogled resort. or is it ogled? I don't, ogled? Know, ogled.
1: Well, I don't it, do it, it very case often. This probably so. not something your wife would appreciate. Reading well, no, here.
0: he actually. But also during the during the when I was with him, he saw a picture of my wife on my phone and said, "Oh, she's a good-looking woman." And I put that in the piece just to show how he was trying to schmooze me. And uh, after the piece came out, and he hated it, and he was going on this Twitter tirade. He said that he was being sarcastic when he was talking about my wife. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. So, um, being one who is obviously repelled by
1: people who ogle or ogle women, he decided to make that a central critique of your uh, uh, about you, but uh, he was but
0: clearly he was very unhappy. Yeah. Why do you think he was so unhappy? You know, I found out later from uh Sam Nunberg, who was the aide yeah. who had helped launch this. Who well, you got fired, right? Yeah, he got yeah. fired because of the thing. He, although it was he later hired back. back. Yeah. yeah, so. Sam Nunberg actually told me that he obviously hated the whole tone of the piece, but well, the thing that most got under his skin was that he had invited me to Mar-a-Lago to marvel at like his house. And apparently I had described it in like a less than uh respectful way. I think I call, I said that my room at Mar-a-Lago reminded me of a slightly dated hotel or something like that. Um, and he was just very upset about that. He the, the assault on his taste and his, uh, uh, aesthetic, I think, hit a nerve because he, when back when he had bought Mar-a-Lago uh, and the kind of Palm Beach upper crust, it all united in opposition to him, and I think that 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 kind of got under his skin. So anyway, he really didn't like the piece,
1: <laughs> uh, and and it wasn't just he who didn't like the piece, but there were others on the left who. Didn't like the piece as well. Is that right?
0: <laughs> well, they ended up not liking the piece in retrospect because they think that he, that my goading him uh, might have been one reason that contributed to him running for president. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that's true? No. I think that the general chorus of, of haters and losers, in his words, probably played a role. I think he did yeah, want to You wrote a piece called wrong. How the Haters Made yeah. Trump. Yeah, I, I do think that that was a big motivating factor. I don't think my particular piece was the reason, but it's clear that his entire campaign, and even now, is defined by his kind of need to prove people wrong. Well, you wrote in the piece, I was. it seems
1: like everybody was at that White House correspondence Dinner in 2011, and <laughs> it's taken on such legendary It's, it's going to be one of these
0: things where, like, you know, five million people say that they were at that dinner. In the but I
1: actually was there because I was helping the president on his remark yeah. and i was sitting a few tables away from uh, uh from trump and he he clearly was unhappy uh and uh, uh so uh <laughs> so so do so you President think you accept, Obama plays a role you <laughs> do, do, i think matt you have you had written that maggie felt that uh that maybe this was one of those things yeah. that spurred him on.
0: Yeah, that, I think that moment might be the in the like super villain origin story. That, that moment might be the moment that created, you know, twenty sixteen Donald Trump. I can't, I can't speak for the president, President Obama,
1: but I bet you if uh, you asked him he would say it would have been worth losing some really good jokes from that presentation if that was actually the I, cause and effect. Oh,
0: man, I, I've gotten to the point. I was asked on TV once, like, would you would you go back and not write that piece if you actually believed that it contributed? And yes, I would not. I would have ret- retracted that piece. That you were writing a book during
1: that campaign mm-hmm. uh, called The Wilderness Deep Inside the Republican Party's Combative, Contentious, Chaotic Quest to Take Back the White House. And... You didn't anticipate the result. Uh, Definitely. What what, what was the premise? First of all, what did you learn about the Republican Party that's now become even more evident? with the election of Trump.
0: So yeah, the book, when I I set out to write, it was not supposed to really be a campaign book. That was kind of the publisher's, uh, <laughs> the publisher's way to sell it later. But the idea was to examine the kind of fracturing of the Republican party that was happening in the wake of 2012. Um, and so I spent that time kind of profiling the leaders of all these different segments of the party. So Rand Paul and the libertarian wing and um, Ted Cruz and the kind of Tea Party social conservative wing. And I, I spent a lot of time with these guys, with their campaign handlers, but then also kind of zooming out and showing how they represented this fracturing of the party. and. The How par- much time did you spend with actual voters? With people? Oh, lots of lots mm-hmm. of time. I mean, I went around. It was during the midterms, actually, when I was most aggressively reporting it, and For I would travel 14. around the country and talk to Republican voters at all of these different, uh, these different, these different events. And, and you didn't and, see Trump, but did you see Trumpism? Yeah. So the the I think if you go back and read the book, what you'll see is that Trump was not treated super seriously. Although I do write about him a lot, um, but. The more what I show is the kind of the fracturing of the party and the institutional decay giving way to this kind of very angry populism that is overtaking the party. And I think that if you read it now, you'll see that there's the you know, the conditions were perfect for Donald Trump to to come in and fill that vacuum. And I mean, frankly, look. The fact that there were 16 candidates in the Republican primary certainly helped Donald Trump, and that was one of the things that the book got at—that there was no unifying uh, cause anymore in the Republican Party. There was so much, uh, you know, civil war going on that uh, there was no no obvious leader to step in and fix it. And Donald Trump came and, and took.
1: I don't. Over. I don't think they're, they're, the fissures in the Democratic Party are um, comparable. But they're certainly there. Yeah. Uh, and you wonder because you'll probably see a comparable number of candidates yeah. on the Democratic side in, in two thousand and twenty. And you
0: know, Does it worry you? I mean, does it worry you about I'm just what a podcaster, man. I'm just, uh, <laughs> I mean I'm just saying I, I you know it, it's, I think you're right, and the the Democratic base is very different from the Republican base. And I think in some ways the Democratic base is actually more, a slightly more practical and more political. But when you have that many people running it creates opportunities for somewhat fringe figures that would not be able to win It otherwise. does, but,
1: you know, it's interesting because, like, one of the fringe figures who people point to is Bernie Sanders. And, <laughs> you know, I, I was watching Bernie uh, Sanders on Sunday on, uh, uh, with Jake Tapper on State of the Union, I think it was. Um, and, well, it's was on one of the shows. But what was striking to me was how polished he actually is. Mm-hmm. You know, Bernie is he is edgy on these economic issues. He is pretty uh practiced and accomplished and he comes across as very, you know, genuine in doing it. You know, he he doesn't feel fringy.
0: he's um, also has a lot of experience in the Senate, which obviously is a big difference. To me, I would be if I were a democrat, I'd be more worried about like Sean Penn running for president, you know, like a a liberal celebrity of some kind. He hasn't been talking about it, has he? I I (laughs) haven't seen that. No, not that I've heard. There's a
1: long, long list. I mean, you see, you know, the outsider candidates being talked about, the Howard Schultzes. Mm -hmm. Someone told me that they thought he would be, he could be a dark horse candidate. I said he sounded more like a dark roast candidate. (laughs) But you never know. I mean, under, I just think that the nature of these things is that um, uh, some form of experience in government may be, uh, desirable but there's there 's certainly um an activist mood in the in the yeah. in the Democratic Party, uh, so I mean I honestly I think anyone who handicaps these races yeah and the only thing that I would say about them, and I say it to all the people who are thinking of running is we don 't have a national primary, so don 't think of it in that way you You have to win, you have to do well in Iowa, yeah. you have to do well in New Hampshire, and you have to be able to compete in the South. And so as you filter through the candidates, you have to think about people who are capable of of running that particular gauntlet. And it's a little bit different than winning a a national uh, uh, beauty contest. But um, what is the state of the Republican Party now? Because, you know, they're coexisting, these factions of the Republican Party. But you've got leadership of Congress, for example, that left to their own devices are pro trade probably would opt for some form of immigration reform uh, you know they are they are globalists they believe mm-hmm. in that I guess trade is part of that um, and they're kind of tip uh, uh, kind of conventional corporate Republicans yeah. Uh, and that is not the Trump base. That is not the Freedom Caucus. That is not the group that seems to be holding sway in Congress right now. That, that almost has the, the leaders, uh, you know, the leaders have basically
0: subjugated themselves to them. But um, Although I would say in the first year, so I'm, I'm writing a piece about this now in The Atlantic. It'll hopefully be up soon. But I would say in the first year the donor class conservatives well, actually certainly won. the tax bill would be the uh, yeah like and that was the only major and that was the only major legislative accomplishment accomplishment right I, I, I you're right i mean look they, they have basically engineered this merger of these two factions that's you know, functioning somewhat. It's not great, obviously. Right. The government just shut down the there. It's not clear to me that there is actually going to be a consensus reached on immigration within the Republican caucus. Um, and then there's all kinds of issues where they they differ. Right. And. Um, but the the question is less about what's going to happen right now in the Donald Trump presidency because so much of it is unpredictable and based on his personality and his twitter feed and the various culture war provocations that he undertakes and the question more is what is the ideological future of the republican party and i actually don't know uh, you know the we all have all taken it for granted that the Republican Party is a conservative party, as defined by small government, low taxes, uh, you know, traditional social issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that's because the conservative movement has basically run the Republican Party for the last fifty years. But what if the conservative movement? is, you know, transmogrified and turned into something more Trumpian, um, something more nativist and nationalist and even populist. That's possible, you know? Well, I think it certainly happened. I mean, that's where the that's that's
1: where the spirit of of a lot of Republicans me let me just add one thing here this is the first time anybody has used the word transmogrified on the podcast so there's there'll be a prize <laughs> prize for you at the end of this okay but um, uh, the the interesting thing is uh, that everybody is getting a little something right so social conservatives are getting uh, their judges. Yep. Uh, On abortion, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, he has uh, he has taken some of the steps that uh, uh, that social conservatives uh, want. Uh, The corporatists got their tax breaks, the deregulation, Um, you know, the 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 populists are getting uh, some of his the trade positions that they wanted. Yeah. Um, But it's 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 never clear what Trump actually believes. Right. Uh, and uh, and you know, for him, I think what has settled in here is for the corporate leader, the corporate Republican leadership of the Congress, to get what they want. Uh, they need Trump to be a guarantor mm-hmm. with the other faction, the populist faction, to hold the whole thing together. It's sort of jerry rigged,
0: right? And and what what I think some people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have exploited is. The way that Donald Trump personalizes all of this, right, the you know, we all watch TV and see these congressmen and lawmakers go on TV and suck up to Trump and we laugh about it. But they're getting a lot of what they want out of Trump because they're cozying up to him, flattering him to, you know, pledging their allegiance to him. He's he's basically giving giving in on a lot of the well, Lindsey
1: Graham had an interview with Dana Bash Mm. uh, recently that I thought was incredibly honest in that he said, she said, why won't you say what he said in that room? Why won't you confirm what you've confirmed privately that he used the word shithole to describe these countries? And he said, because I want to be able to talk to him. Yeah. And he said, you know, and he said, why don't you ask me the next question? Is he a racist? And she said, okay. is he? And he said, no, he's not. He said, it doesn't matter if you're black or white. If you flatter Donald Trump, he will be nice to you. And if you attack him, he will be mean to you. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I want everybody to think about that for a second. And we're going to take another (laughs) short break. And we'll be right back with McKay Coppins. One guy who's mastered the art of, uh, of uh, managing Donald Trump appears to be uh, the vice president, Mike Pence. And uh, you wrote a lengthy piece for The Atlantic uh, recently called God's Plan for Mike Pence, uh, which was a really interesting piece. I, I uh, recommend it to anybody uh, who wants to get a real sense of that relationship. Um So tell me about that. First, you know, because it seems like an unlikely pairing. Yeah. Mike Pence, you know, uh, evangelical Christian, uh, a guy who won't be in a room with uh, women unless his wife is there with him uh, and, uh, you know, prudish and uh, by any standard, I suppose. And uh, and you know basically gentle in his relationships although not afraid to throw an elbow here or there i mean trump does not fit his prototype
0: no so no not at all in fact i was
1: reading by the way i was reading your piece and something struck me about pence's days as a uh, as a radio uh talk show host in be in the interregnum yes uh, when when he was trying to re restart his political career and he uh, you said he fretted about the insufficient punishment given to a female air force pilot who had engaged in, in an extramarital affair and he said is adultery no longer a big deal in indiana in america well i guess the
0: answer is yes uh because i haven't heard him talk about it lately no in fact, he, I think, was just asked about that story about Trump and the the porn star. And yes, he, he Stormy called, Daniels. Oh, It's a ba- baseless allegation. Who, who knows? Look, the, the thing about Mike Pence is that he is actually kind of in his relationship with Trump an avatar for the religious right in general, right? It makes no sense that values voters, that leaders of the religious right, conservative Christian leaders have... Cozied up to Trump to the extent that they have, because it's not as if they voted for him and supported him reluctantly. Right. And said, you know, we don't really like this, but it's the lesser of two evils. They're out there all the time making excuses for him and apologies for him and and, you know, saying that they're going to be his biggest supporters and his best friends. It's frankly a lot like how Mike Pence is. Why? Why did that happen? Well, I'm asking you, man. Well, the, <laughs> well, the, the my my question was rhetorical. Oh, okay. The the answer is that. Um, they, the religious right and Mike Pence w- were in 2016 at a moment where they saw their political power slipping away, right? The the religious right had been winning culture wars for years. And in the relatively recent years, uh, they had all of a sudden seen the tides of public opinion shift against them on issues like gay yeah, rights. Yeah, right. Um On issues, frankly, like school prayer, pornography, all these issues that had been their bread and butter for so long were now, you know, not working for them anymore. And so you have at that moment, Donald Trump winning the Republican nomination. He's clearly not a Christian exemplar, a moral exemplar, but he's a strong man, and he's promising the religious right, "I'll protect you." Notwithstanding
1: the fact that not that many years ago he was uh, strongly pro-choice right. and proclaimed himself of as such,
0: and th- and that was the question: should we should we trust this guy? All, obviously 80-something percent of white evangelicals chose to. But what's interesting is right at that same time, Mike Pence's political career was kind of imploding, right? Yeah. He was the governor of Indiana. He had gotten very, into this whole— Very well
1: may have lost his real Right. He, he, there were real and, and, questions uh, about whether
0: he'd win re-election. Democrats were raising money to defeat him. His national reputation had been tarnished by this culture war debacle that he got himself in. Um, his his career looked like it might be over. And Donald Trump came, knocking and basically offered salvation to him and uh Pence took it, right? But what I, th- I tried to get at in the piece is that th- this is you know he his, ambition his personal ambition is tangled up in his religious beliefs because it's not just that he wants to be powerful or he wants to be president by all accounts according to you know dozens of people i talked to who who have known him throughout his life he believes that it's his you know divine destiny to have this political power that god has put him here
1: you also though hinted that some of his religiosity or at least his embrace of uh evangelical christianity he started as a, a catholic, catholic yeah um, t- was uh, timed uh to coincide with the rise of uh the religious right and uh, yeah and and so you didn't quite say it but your implication was that he saw some advantage in that
0: well yeah i don't know actually i mean i know that the timing was remarkable he he became an evangelical christian uh, a year before Jerry Falwell launched the Moral Majority, right as evangelical Christianity was becoming kind of in vogue in Christian circles. Though, look, that's also just a, f- a factor of the the culture, right? right. I mean, he No, he. I mean, I, he, I, I,
1: I don't. I really don't want to sit here and yeah. climb in his head on that one, but
0: yeah, me neither. And and look, he uh, the what he actually struggled with this. You know, his whole family is very devout Catholic and still is. And for a lot of years, if you go back and read the clips, he would try to straddle the theological fence. He would call himself an evangelical Catholic. Um, he eventually fully embraced the evangelical identity and clearly has advanced, you know, that's been politically advantageous. But I think that that is actually real for him. I think that that's where he But is. these
1: ambitions, they go back to youth. I mean, you quoted yeah. people from an early time in his life saying, you know, this guy his, his frat to be brother. president. His
0: yeah. frat brother told me that we all knew he wanted to be president back then when he was, you know, 19, 20
1: Well, one old. of the stories you told was quite remarkable <laughs> about that. And just in terms of the, what it betrayed of him uh, was when uh, he was in a fraternity mm-hmm. in sort of an animal house type fraternity. And uh, the dean came knocking on the door, having heard that there were there were uh, kegs in there keggers in there yeah and uh and rather than covering for he answered the door and rather than covering for his fraternity brothers he led the dean right to the, <laughs> the straight to the
0: kegs to yeah, the kegs exactly.
1: and the whole fraternity got yeah but he ended up with a job with the administration.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and it kind. Of, I, to me, I think that you know, that can be read a lot of different ways. What's clear is that he knows how to, you know, suck up to authority figures and if it's going to be advantageous to him, and and he uh, he clearly did, and that's served him well now as well.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, most people. It, it's hard
1: to miss the sort of adoring stare that he. <laughs>
0: It's Nancy Reagan-esque. <laughs> yes, uh, it
1: shoots uh, uh, Trump's way. And the, uh, the overweening tributes to him at those uh, cabinet yeah. meetings, those yeah. tribute meetings that Trump has for the cameras. Uh, one of the interesting stories that you had in this very interesting piece was about how Pence uh, actually became the vice presidential nominee because it wasn't only us who thought that they were an odd pairing. Trump thought that they were an odd pairing and was a little turned off by his, his uh, prudishness mm-hmm. uh, and didn't know if he could coexist uh, with him. And uh, Paul Manafort, now famous for other reasons, <laughs> uh, was then the campaign chair and thought Pence would be a good running mate for uh, mm-hmm. Trump. What did he do
0: to try and promote that cause? Yeah, well, you know, Trump was, as he was kind of getting to the time where he had to make a decision, he was leaning toward Chris Christie. Trump wanted Chris Christie to be his running mate. Um, Everyone on the campaign thought that that would be a disaster, um, and they wanted Pence to be the running mate. So apparently, during a campaign swing through Indiana, Trump's plane broke down or so he was told. And so he ended up having to stay a night in Indiana. And he giving Pence one last chance to kind of make his pitch uh, to Trump. And that ended up working. Trump liked him in that second meeting and ended up choosing him. What we're told what I was told later is that Paul Manafort, the campaign chairman, actually made up the story about the campaign plane breaking down uh, just to keep Trump there an extra night. So,
1: so Paul Manafort wasn't ...wasn't truthful?
0: (laughs) It's it's, it's hard to believe.
1: Uh, You also write about that period when the Access Hollywood tape Mm -hmm. surfaced. And from the outside, the story was that Pence was uh, going through soul-searching... ...because he was so uh, disgusted by what he had heard... ...that Mm -hmm. he uh, didn't know if he could continue on the ticket... You add some dimensionality to what was actually going on right uh, at that time, and it it was a little bit more self-interested, or it appeared to be.
0: Yeah, so uh, what I'm told by several Republicans who are familiar with what happened is that— Hours after the, the Washington Post published the Access Hollywood tape, Pence made clear to the Republican National Committee that he was ready to take Trump's place at the top of the ticket. And you remember there were a lot of Republicans calling for Trump to drop out at that moment. In fact, during a meeting with uh, Trump and his senior advisors, I'm told that, uh, Reince Priebus actually said, uh, that Pence and Condoleezza Rice were ready to step in as the new ticket. So it gives you kind of a glimpse at, you know, Pence might have seen in that moment a, a, an opportunity. And so that that might have so been part of why he was staying so away. So how did
1: Trump react to that? Do you have any sense of that? I mean, because so, that yeah, had to be a strain on their relationship. It, it's
0: interesting. I think that—I don't know about this. I think what must have happened is that Pence, you know, said, oh, that wasn't me. That was, you know, just an idea being floated. But I never would have done that, right? Yeah. um but it see, but that whole you know, even if that even if that hadn't happened, Pence still the fact that he was stepping away from the campaign for those two days, I am told that that has left a mark on Trump in his inner circle. His true loyalists are all very skeptical of Pence. They they think he's a good soldier when he's supposed to be and when he has to be, but they all wonder and they'll speculate to me that you know if the this. Russia investigation really got bad for Trump or if there was a moment where, you know, congressional action looked like it might be happening and Trump needed to depend on Pence to to be the good soldier. They're not sure he would be. And so I don't know, obviously, but I know that that is something that people in Trump's orbit are talking about.
1: He, uh, a few days, a day or two after the uh, election, Chris Christie, who had been leading the transition team, was purged. Uh, by most accounts, uh, because of his uh, poor relationship with Jared Kushner, whose father he had prosecuted when he was a U.S. attorney, Uh, Pence stepped in. Uh, I've sort of always thought that he was very impactful from the standpoint of conservative, the conservative point of view, because when you look at some of the uh, Mulvaney at the yeah. uh, OMB, um, Pruitt at uh, the EPA, and some of the judges, the, the most conservative judges that we've seen uh, come mm-hmm. down the pike. Um, how big an impact do you think that uh, Pence had? And does this reflect his thinking and his relationships?
0: Yeah, I, I think it does. I mean, it's clear that Pence has, and even at lower level Positions stacked the kind of federal government with allies and like-minded people. There are conservatives and religious conservatives all over the Trump administration because they know Pence. Um, And then, yeah, even the uh, some of the cabinet picks are clearly Pence recommendations, right? Um, That's why, you know, Pence's conservative defenders have made this case to me, and they still will, that, you know, you might say that Pence has sold his soul to Donald Trump, but he's having an impact on public policy in a way that he never would have. If he wasn't willing to cozy up to Trump and he's advancing his goals, and you know, maybe, uh, maybe at the end of the day, that that's what he should be doing. Uh, You know, I think that there are moral questions to answer about that line of of argument. Well, right, exactly. But certainly he's getting a lot of a lot out of uh, this deal that
1: yeah, I think he is. I think Mm -hmm. he is. So we don't know if Donald Trump will run for reelection. we know he has a campaign committee mm-hmm. but that could be to pay for expenses he wants paid for we we just don't know uh if there were if if for some reason he wasn't president in 2020 or he did not run in 2020 there is this uh i think misplaced assumption that pence would ipso facto become the standard bearer of the party
0: that 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 that's not true is it I, d- I just don't see it happening. I mean, look, if, if Trump exited his ended his term early somehow and Pence became president, that would be one thing. But, you know, Pence has never been an obvious champion of Trumpism, right? Trump's base likes him because he's so loyal to Trump or seems so loyal to Trump. But Pence is not an obvious, uh, you know, uh, hero to those folks, or at least to a lot of them. And, and frankly, I think that in a Republican primary in 2020— I, you know, I'm not sure that Trump would return the loyalty. He's not shown any ability to, uh, you know, get be return the favor of people who have been loyal to him. So and I doubt you, that And
1: you see people who are actively courting that Trump constituency, yeah. like Tom Cotton, yes. the senator from yeah. Arkansas, mm-hmm. and there are others. There are other sort of preeminent uh, leaders in the Trump administration. Nikki Haley yep. comes to mind, who, uh, you know, has clearly. Elevated herself in the, you know, in the eyes of of Republicans, uh, would be an interesting candidate.
0: So now it is possible. The one caveat I'd add is that. One thing Pence has done masterfully is use his position in the, as the vice president to stay very close to to Republican donors, and I think he would have a lot of money and have a pretty serious, you know, organization behind him if he ran. So it's possible he could still win the primary, but he's not going to be heir apparent. It's not like it's just going to land in his lap. Well, McKay Coppins,
1: thank you for this for this conversation and for your uh, your tour of duty here, your mission here uh, at the University of Chicago uh, as a visiting fellow. It's great, great to have
0: you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.